mesmo sentido. Welcome back to the Africa is a Country podcast. My name is William Shoki and you're listening to this which is Africa is a Country's destination for discussions and interviews on happenings on the continent from a pan-African and progressive perspective. In today's episode we're going to focus on what's happening in Sudan. For nearly two months, fighting has continued between the Sudanese armed forces headed by General Abdel Fattah al-Burhan and the rapid support forces led by Lieutenant General Mohamed Hamdan Dagalo, also known as Hemeti. They represent two factions of the country's military government. and The fighting has largely been concentrated in the capital Khartoum, as well as Sudan's Darfur region, with more than 1,500 people killed so far. The conflict originates in Sudan's 2019 revolution when Omar al-Bashir, who ruled the country as a military despot for 30 years, was overthrown. Following his ousting, the military consolidated power, but eventually agreed to a power-sharing deal with a transition to civilian rule foreseen. This, of course, was also after they massacred protesters in Khartoum in June of 2019. But in October of 2021, The Sudanese armed forces and rapid support forces joined forces to dispose Sudan's interim civilian leader, Abdallah Hamdok. The proximate causes of today's fighting stem from a dispute over how to integrate the RSF into Sudan's security apparatus. But fundamentally, both sides see the others in existential threats, a possible foil to their control of vast economic interests such as gold and gum Arabic. The international community, with its own interests in the Sudanese economy, is also to blame being overcommitted to the military factions as elite brokers of the transitional process. Excluded in all of this, of course, are the Sudanese people themselves. So joining me today to discuss the roots of the crisis, as well as the ways that ordinary Sudanese people are proving resilient, is Mahader Sarek Baran. Mahader is a political science PhD student at Syracuse University. She's also the vice chairperson of the Global Pan-African Movement, the North American delegation. Enjoy the conversation. And be sure to subscribe to the AIAC podcast wherever you listen to your podcasts and stay tuned for more regular episodes. Enjoy. Mahadev, thank you very much for coming onto the podcast. Thank you so much, William, for having me. So obviously uh, the fighting has continued in Khartoum after a very short-lived ceasefire. And a lot of the coverage of what's happening in Sudan is obviously and correctly focused on the tragedies that are unfolding the way it's been completely catastrophic for ordinary Sudanese people. Um, but I thought it might be useful to try and get a bigger picture of how this all began. So can you maybe start by talking about what are the proximate causes that led to the fighting between the military and the rapid support forces? Um, as well as where that all originates. Yes, for sure. Um, so I can take us as far back as like, you know, Sudan's independence to talk about how, you know, 2019 was the third time the Sudanese people organized to remove a military regime from power. Um, but then I want us to focus on what happened from 2019 to like 2023 for this to happen, right? So in 2019, protests erupted in various parts of Sudan, right? And so after four months of coordinated demonstrations among a lot of civilian groups, including uh, workers, including farmers, um, students um, across the board, across Sudan, 
uh, on April 2019, 30-year incumbent Omar al-Bashir was removed from power. So although the military attempted to take power once Omar al-Bashir, they escorted Omar al-Bashir out, um, the people refused. And so one of the deadliest days in the uprising actually came as a result of this refusal, which is on June 3rd, 2019, which the Sudanese also refer to as the Ramadan massacre. Uh, this is when security forces, which indicates both uh, um, military and RSF personnel went into the largest sit-in in Khartoum, which was happening right in front of the uh, military headquarters in Khartoum, and killed more than 120 people in a span of a few hours and violently dispersed the sit-in, which was refusing um, military uh, takeover or transition, right? And so this didn't really kill the spirit of the uh, uprising or the revolution and continued, the people continued to organize. And so this kind of the deadly massacre resulted in more mobilization and more protests. So by August 2019, the military conceded to form a civilian military transitional government. And this was going to be made up of the Transitional Military Council and a coalition of civilian groups called the Forces of Freedom and Change. And so under the Transitional Military Council is the military and the Rapid Support Forces currently referred to the RSF, right? Uh, but historically are known as the Janjaweed and have been related to a lot of massacres in Darfur uh, under Omar al-Bashir's instigation. Um, and so on, this is happening, basically the TMC and FFC uh, collaboration is coming uh, with a, a lot of pressure from foreign uh, um, foreign countries to, to come to a negotiation, right? Because the streets have completely refused any military role in Sudan's politics, because historically they have seen where that has led them. Um, despite this disagreement transition holds, you know, some protests abide for a little bit. And on October 25, 2021, which is now referred as the October coup, the military stage, the military, not the military, the security apparatus, which includes the military and the RSF, co collaboratively stage a coup that reverses and stalls the democratic process, right? And so the October 25 coup demonstrated clearly the unwillingness of the security apparatus to relinquish power to civilians that seek to challenge the organization of politics and economy in the service of Sudanese people, because within the span of that transitional agreement made, there was a lot of asset uh, uh, recovery happening from uh, past regime members and from the military, because the military has essentially really, uh, the military and the, 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 the RSF have uh, uh, this, um, unregulated control of the economy of Sudan, whether we're looking at the RSF's uh, control of the gold mines in Western uh, Sudan, or we're looking at the military's ownership of companies, the, the both both the in institutions' uh, relations in banking sectors and all of these uh, telecommunication sectors, and I can go on. Basically, they had the, the economy of Sudan in a chokehold, and that really serviced a lot of the foreign actors that were benefiting from that chokehold in Sudan. So October 25 showed that these military men could not be trusted Right. Um, and then the various forms of support for this coup regime were uh, uh, from different actors exhibited the interest of foreign actors also to preserve the political and economic status quo in Sudan. Um, but daily demonstration continued against the coup and the military rule. Um, and the, the a slogan of no compromise, no partnership, no negotiation came from the streets. Uh, in, in, re in relation to these military men. Nonetheless, the, the, the security apparatus control over the economic sectors 
and the support it received from foreign capital and diplomacy kind of strengthened uh, both of these organizations. And, you know, I can give you like just what happened just between um, just between 2023 January um, and uh, March before April 15, before two two of these factors, uh, two of these factions broke out into all out war. And basically um, you had initially, I think, when was it? yeah, you had Egypt's intel chief meet with the military. Then came the director of Turkey's intelligence, followed by the Israeli foreign minister, and then a delegation of envoys uh, collectively, including the EU, US, UK, Norway, France, and Germany. Uh, and then right as soon as they left came the Russian foreign minister. And this is between the span of February and March, right? And some of these representatives are meeting with these different factions separately, right? Further legitimizing and creating autonomous relations to foreign actors. And so it was inevitable for anyone that was really um, following what was happening in Sudan that these two factions could not, like, where first they were gaining uh, individual power, autonomy, really, you know, direct access to capital outside relations, uh, but also uh, they were coming at a point where one of them would have to take control power because both of them could not coexist, right? One threatened the other's existence. Um, So anyone that was really paying attention to what was happening in Sudan with the people of Sudan in mind knew this was inevitable. But the scale, I think, and the really the, the, the scale of it was not imagined, I think, by anybody. I think what you just said now uh, about how anyone paying attention with the Sudanese people in mind could have anticipated it. And what I'm hearing from you is that the Sudanese people were not front of mind for the international community and that there is a cast of different characters who have all been backing different factions of the security apparatus at different points. Um, So first of all, you mentioned some of it earlier for both regionally hegemonic um, and internationally hegemonic forces. What is there to gain in Sudan? Why is there so much interest in Sudan um, from a geopolitical and economic standpoint? Um, And why was the international community besides making all of these overtures to democracy and the importance of civilian transition, why were they so beholden to a process uh, which at every turn excluded uh, ordinary Sudanese people and vested so much of the decision-making power uh, in these military factions? Yeah, so I can give you like, I mean, generally when you're thinking of, okay, what resources exist in Sudan, right? You're looking at gold. You're looking at uh, gum Arabic, which is super important for the production and manufacturing of a lot of commercial goods, um, which is interestingly, if you look at the previous sanctions on Sudan under the U.S., uh, gum Arabic was exempt because companies like Coca-Cola lobbied for those uh, imports because they needed it. Right. So just off the top, the Sudan is contributing like a, a great amount of gold and gum Arabic to world world production. Right. Um, geopolitically, Sudan is very important, not only because of how each region con- consists of different minerals or different 
uh, but because it stands between what they love to call Sub-Saharan Africa, a terminology I do not use, and North Africa. And so what happens in Sudan essentially is going to affect the Horn of Africa. It's going to affect Egypt. It's going to affect North Africa, right? It's going to affect Chad and all the other countries. So a stronghold in Sudan means really like a good control of these regional plays and powers, right? Um, um, a lot of countries have been trying to build military bases in Sudan, right? Um, so that's also a, a kind of can tell you to the uh, what what that means, uh, but generally, um, so I can give you like the group that calls themselves Friends of Sudan. Uh, they formed in 2019, and they consist of Canada, France, Germany, Japan, Netherlands, Norway, Saudi Arabia, Spain, Sweden, Switzerland, the UK, the US, the, and the European Union, Italy, and the UAE. Right, and generally, anybody thinking of these countries collectively might see how they might have different interests in any country, but they are objectively aligned, right? Uh, but these members and, and you know, uh, Russia, China are not included in these Friends of Sudan categories. They don't release statements together collectively, but also have objective, uh, um, um, objective alliances with these countries when it comes to what's happening in Sudan. Um, and so um, we can understand why, because First of all, with the Transitional Military Council in power, for instance, uh, Western states and foreign creditors have been able to ensure Sudan's role in the global capitalist economy uh, was not interrupted. And this is to say, for example, uh, IMF diktats continue to be implemented, notably the withdrawal of fuel subsidies, right? Um, the, the Transitional Military Council also established privatization programs of state assets, um, you know, and then you can also see the security apparatus exports Sudanese people as migrant uh, military labor to fight wars uh, launched by the Saudis and the Emiratis, right? Uh, whereas you can look at the EU, EU like the one of the uh, the uh, revenues coming in for the rapid support forces was uh, EU funding because the EU was funding the military of Sudan to guard its borders from migration, right? Um, so some members of the Friends of Sudan, such as the U.S. and U.K., legitimize the military through public diplomacy and indirect business relationships. And you can look at like relations between American institutions, American uh, businesses like Valdemont Industries and um, 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 the Sudanese military to see what kind of relations of flow of capital is happening or has been happening over the last few years. Uh, and so whereas other members such as Saudi Arabia and the UAE do so through, ex they support uh, the security of Paris through explicit military aid, including fresh uh, cash, fuel, wheat injections, and all of these other things. Um, so, yeah, I, I guess I'll stop there and I'll wait for you to perhaps maybe ask me a more targeted question. Mm. I mean, I want oh, well, to take a step back. More than anything, I think... Currently, also there is you need. I need to kind of emphasize the threat of Sudanese revolution um, because what is happening in Sudan since 2019 has been a revolutionary buildup, and what's been happening is people are capturing their countries and taking it back. That is also a huge threat, right? And you know, Sudan also breaks this narrative. Young people in Sudan have been coming out as anti-Islamist, right? 
anti-tribalism, anti-racism. And so this really breaks first the North Africa, like other parts of Africa divide that Westerners love to repeat and Africans have kind of taken on as well. And it also, it's like what the Sunnis people are asking for is a complete reorganization of politics and economy, right? In ways where Africans are going to be working for Africans, African economies for Africans. So that is also a, a legitimate threat for all of these countries I've mentioned. Yeah, I, I wanted, I mean, that's a, you anticipated the question I wanted to ask, you know, in, in the way the 2019 revolution and its aftermath is typically portrayed, it's uh, alongside the narrative of a failed Arab Spring, so to speak. So once again, you have a context where people are angling for democracy um, and that fails. Um, and what gets kind of swept under the carpet is, as you said, the tremendous social transformation that has uh, has come to fruition, where, as you say, people are are preparing for for revolution, and there's been incredible infrastructures of grassroots democracy and decision making that have emerged. Um, and I, I just would would like you to to paint the picture for us as to um, you, know, you know, one, what are the nature, what is the nature of these institutions um, and how have they proved resilient despite, uh, you know, basically wave after wave of, of crackdown from Sudan security apparatus, um, including the, the outbreak of fighting that's gripping the country today? Mm-hmm. So there are a lot of grassroots organizations active in Sudan. And like you said, I think this war has shown how what they've been able to build so far, right? So my work specifically focuses on the resistance committees. Um, These are uh, groups uh, and uh, coalitions that formed from neighborhood communities, right? Basically young people in their neighborhoods, um, young and old people in their neighborhoods started coming together and like some trace the origins of the resistance committees as early as 2011 and 2013 when they were like organizing protests as far back as then. Uh, Basically young people came together and decided they were going to do certain things for their communities. And not always were these uh, um, committees to resist or to protest against regime, but they were also to provide um, different resources to the communities that were lacking. So early on, we saw things like when wheat was in shortage, right? The resistance committees were organizing to ensure that the wheat being given by the government was going to actual bakers and the bakers weren't uh, hiking the prices. And so bread wasn't at shortage, right? Um, Some of the resistance committees were working with uh, rebuilding roads and pavements. Some were working with real organizing markets so there's uh, better working conditions for market people. Um, So essentially this was happening. But when 2019, 2018, the uprising officially like began and started full force, the the neighborhood committees turned into the resistance committees, right? They were the organizations um, organizing protests. And the, the strength did not only come from the grassroots, uh, the fact that different neighborhoods in Khartoum were being organized, but this was a national level, right? So by 2019, when resistance committees in Khartoum were forming and they were coordinating for protests, this the 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 model of the resistance committees were became national, right? Everybody all across Sudan started building the same thing. And what they did is kind of create a loose network of organizations. And so things like, okay, April 21, we're having protests, right? 
everybody knows what time, where from, right? Resistance committees know like when one, one committee is going on protest and there's crackdown by the security apparatus, they're calling on other neighborhood committees to come out. And so this is really what the military could not handle and had to give in to, to the power of the people. And they played a huge role in this. And I think today when the war break broke out, what we saw is that um, it was the resistance, and it is, and it's similar committees like that, right? And I want to, even though I focus on the resistance committees, I want to like kind of emphasize there's a lot of workers uh, uh, unions working, right? Yeah. Including like Can not- Can I ask a question about that? Quickly, okay. I just want to ask a question about the role of the, the Sudanese Professionals Association, um, which, you know, consists primarily of professionals, doctors, lawyers, journalists. And, you know, what I find, well, surprising, at least it, it disrupts a traditional narrative of the way revolutionary processes work is that you assume that, you know, the petty bourgeoisie are people who stand to lose when there's a, a social ferment, but that's not the case in, in Sudan. So um, as you describe the vast kind of uh, array of, of different kinds of, of, of workers, people who sell their labor and the kind of um, definition uh, who participate in this process, I'd be interested to hear more about the Professionals Association and how they've been a, a hotbed of, of resistance. Yeah. Um, I, like, and this is where like the the nature of class classifications in Africa need to be re-examined every time, right? Because the petty bourgeoisie, the doctors, the journalists in Sudan were not only making less than minimum wage and as as little as some of the peasantry, but they were working triple jobs, double jobs, because they weren't making enough money. So they had been, the conditions they were living in were deteriorating over the last 30 years, right? And so they were literally, I mean, a few days before the April 2019 protests broke out full scale, the Sudanese Professionals Association was releasing a statement talking about the dire, like, lack of these professionals. They have no pay, they're forced to do multiple jobs, even job security is not enough, migration rates of these professionals, because the conditions were deteriorated. So to think of the petty bourgeoisie in this like, you know, middle class is really like, it needs to be re-examined in Africa. And then you can see why those alliances could be made, right? Because they were based on real life experiences that people could see eye to eye, right? Um, and so the Sunnis Professionals Association, one of the things it called for was to replicate the resistance committees. So you saw this dialectical relation between these, these grassroots organizers and these like, you know, professional groups who have power, access, and more, uh, uh, um, uh, you know, visibility, uh, whether via state or via international community, work with these resistance committees, right? And so even today, it's the same thing. The Sunnis Professionals Association um, signed the charter that the resistance committees had released in early 2023, January, right? They were promoting this charter because it also represents them, even though the charter came from the resistance committees. So, and also it's it's important to note, Sudan has this, uh, like uh, the Tea Sellers Association is something so important. And when I, when I did a study of the 2019 uprising, basically the tea sellers union, the tea sellers are not professionals, right? But they're workers, which what, what the West would love to call informal workers, but really are like at the heart of what is allowing Sudanese workers in Khartoum to survive. They provide, you know, affordable food on the streets, right? They provide water for people and um, they're everywhere. And they tend to be, uh, it tends to be a lot of uh, internally displaced migrants that 
occupy these roles uh, that come to Khartoum looking for jobs but can't find jobs so they end up just creating their own stall on the streets and selling like affordable food and drinks right uh, or even foreigners like when I was in Khartoum last year I met a lot of Ethiopians that were tea sellers right uh, and so these tea sellers had a union by 2019 when the protests had already erupted they had a 20 union of 20,000 plus Right. And so when the sitting, when I told you the June 3rd massacre happened, when that sit in, like during the sit in, they were providing labor. They were provide, you know, they were at the heart of these organizations. Right. When when conversations about mediations were going on, they were sitting down with professionals and committee members talking and representing themselves. So you really have this like. Um, strong organization of not just professionals in the in the term we think about it or workers in the thing terms as we think about it, uh, but really everyone in the society. Um. Mm. And yeah, I think your, your point about understanding and uh, class structure in Africa is, is a salient one. Uh, could you maybe talk a little bit about the class structure of Sudan and, and place the military in that? Because I guess, yeah, this probably involves also a longer answer, but how the military uh, amassed so much power and it's 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 a power that is is obstinate in the sense that even though it lacks political legitimacy it's okay with that there's almost no interest in at least at the moment there was um uh, at, a, at a for at a superficial level after the revolution to to kind of afford some sort of appearance of of consent from the masses but uh, as we were discussing earlier the the scale of the confrontation now and the existential threat that each side interprets the other as posing just indicates that it's it's a, a, a sort of fight to the death for for power without any concern or interest in the ramifications for for the Sudanese people um how did that kind of sort of uh, underlying kind of psychology of entitlements to power at all costs develop? Mm -hmm. Yeah, so I can give you a brief breakdown of how these different, whether it's the Sudanese armed forces or the rapid support forces um, have uh, economic, what kind of economic power and role they have and some of the most egregious examples. But before I go like tell you about that, I just want to say like it is important to understand that the rank and file of these organizations, I'm not attempting to uh, put in the same category with the generals and the elite of these organizations. Uh, because mm -hmm. the rank and file in Sudan um, uh, have basically since, whether it, we're looking at before uh, the independence of South Sudan in 2011, or post, you know, the kind of uh, violence that's been ongoing in different parts of the country uh, and the kind of uh, um, inability for people to make a living. Um, those are things we need to really understand to understand how the rank and file have been able to join or continue to be a part of these uh, security apparatus. But I can tell you about the generals. and before, the before, Yeah, before, before that, I mean, that's, yeah, that's such a, um, it's, an, it's an interesting kind of, um, I don't know, sociological problem to confront because it's it's present, you know, across the continent. Uh, security apparatuses are primarily made up of people who, uh, you know, on the on the one hand, are you know, working class in terms of their economic location, in terms of the compulsions which drive them to seek out a career in the military, in the police, 
or whatever as a, primarily as a source of income, um, but on the other hand, are also you know enforcers of of, of the system. Um, there's a recent book by an American writer, Cedric Johnson. I mean, he's addressing a completely different context, but sort of kind of says that, you know, progressives should start to think about a strategy for trying to recruit members of the security uh, apparatus. Um, is, is that the kind of thing that is happening in Sudan that you think could work in, in Sudan? Have there been cases of, you know, defection where people, you know, as happens in many other cases, uh, realize that, you know, the, the lives that they're destabilizing are the lives of their families um, uh, and so on. So there's been like, especially early on, there's been, there was a lot of reports of infections from especially the RSF uh, in Khartoum. Um, and um, this had to do with like losses of the RSF, but also perhaps some of the understandings that you're saying. Um, but it's going to be hard to speak on that. And I will say a lot of organizations have been calling for defection, right? A lot of Sudanese organizations have been calling for each of their members, each side factions to come out against these generals, against the elite of each of these security factions. Um, and so that is a reality. But to say that um, that is something we should uh, bank on and expect and mm. kind of work toward is also not realistic, especially considering the kind of what the egregious, egregious crimes we've seen being committed. And part mm. of the the uh, the calls during the uprising were accountability, right? And justice. And so, yes, we need to think of what it means, why these young, you know, some as young, we, we have reports about how the, the rapid support forces were sending, were kidnapping 12-year-olds, 13-year-olds, and sending them to fight in wars in Yemen, right? And we have reports about how in Yemen, Sudanese soldiers were used as cannon fodder, right? So we need to understand the oppression that's happening to our people, but we also need to understand that, like, accountability and justice will have to be part of the framework that continues or else healing and redress is going to be, you know, impossible. Um, yeah. So I, I don't know if you want me to take you back about like kind of the general's uh, uh, economic hope. Okay. So I'm just going to like briefly go over some of my notes. And so in 2020, it was uh, Prime Minister Abdullah Hamdok then, right, said uh, the military's asset and ownership and control over commercial businesses and sectors from mining to agriculture is unacceptable. And he said like, and I quote, only 18% of the state's resources are in the hands of the government, right? So collectively, the Sudanese armed forces and the rapid uh, support forces own a range of enterprises from flour mills, transportation hubs, uh, to import and export companies dealing with some of Sudan's top revenue and quantity commodities, right? Uh, such as livestock, gold, sesame. Um, and not only does the military and their network own companies, but these companies are usually exempt from paying taxes or operate in total opacity, right? And so currently, according to the Central Bank of Sudan, the service sector is the largest GDP contributor. And the financial sector, which includes banking and insurance, takes up a large share of the, ser if the service sector. And according to the African Development Bank, uh, banks dominate the financial sector of Sudan, accounting for over 80% of total assets. 
Um, so today, Omdurman National Bank is the largest financial institution in Sudan. And then more than 80% of its shares is currently owned by several corporations that can be traced to the Sudan Armed Forces. Um, and so as you can see, the military insulates its ownership under subsidy companies and Sudan Armed Forces directed charities, including Special Fund for Social Security of the Armed Forces or the Charitable Authority for the Support of the Armed Forces, right? And what I'm saying is also coming from a, a very important report that I can share with you after our call. Um, so similarly, 20 to 50 percent ownership of the companies that are shareholders of the Al-Khalij Bank founded in 2013 also can be traced to Lieutenant General Hamdan Dagalo, also known as Hamati, the head general of um, the Rapid Support Forces and his family. Right. Uh, and. So um, uh, Dagalo and his family are also at the heart of the illegal gold trade in uh, Western Sudan, right, and parts of Darfur. So ownership of banks and correspondent international banking relationships, such as Al-Khalij relations in the UAE, Bahrain, Egypt, Saudi Arabia, the US, UK, Turkey, Italy, means that SAF and RSF can access foreign currency, and they can conduct illicit transfers with minimal oversight, and there's just unaccounted circulation of capital uh, that is just facilitated by, that is not just facilitated by the banks, but the military-owned companies and their relations abroad, right? So another example I can give you is Zadna International Company for Investment. Um, this is an agricultural and, uh, and uh, construction conglomerate, and it's owned by the Sunat Armed Forces, right? And it has... a import and export relations with the U.S. company called Valmont Industries, right? Just recently in 2020, Valmont representatives met with the coup leader, uh, General Al-Burhan, and um, they, they, you know, shaked hands on new deals in different sectors. So I just mentioned to you some of perhaps the most egregious and the most, but um, as I mentioned, uh, both both of these factions exist, uh, their their ownership, their control of the economy across across sectors. Mm. So it's 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 hard to imagine, and this is the clue as to why the scale of the fighting has been so egregious. It's hard to imagine any of these factions wanting to give up their economic interests because it means tremendous losses. They've spread their tenor hooks far and wide um, across the Sudanese economy. So, you know, when, when trying to even begin to think about what the resolution of this looks like, I mean, in the, in the immediate term, there has to be a cessation of fighting. You know, that much is clear, the devastation that is destroying homes, families, and, and ending lives prematurely, that has to stop. But, you know, once, once the fighting ends, what, what happens next? What could possibly uh, happen next? And that is one process. Uh, and then there's another process that you've been talking about as well, which is a revolutionary buildup. Um, how does that intersect uh, with, with, when thinking about these two trajectories? Mm -hmm. I recently, Muzan Al-Neil, who has been outspoken about what's been happening, um, she she wrote a very interesting paper and a very useful uh, article, and she called for uh, revolution, not roundtables, and I, I really like that. Um, but I can kind of tell you, first of all, what's been happening since April 15, 2023, yeah. right? It's these resistance committees and other people's committees that were formed in similar models to the resistance committees that have been basically the lifeline of the Sudanese people, right? We all saw 
all the aid agencies evacuate. We all saw, you know, all the, 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 the organizations, including state, foreign, that were supposed to be in service of Sudanese people abandoned them at their worst, right? And ironically, the resistance committees were part of the main that helped a lot of expats make it to safety, right? But of course, yeah. uh, when the planes came up to pick up their own people, uh, nothing, nothing was done for the Sudanese people. But as of now, whether you're looking at information and logistics, which is identifying and monitoring safe routes, handling logistics for safety evacuation, it's these people's committees that are doing it. Whether you're looking at supplying food and essential services, including medical supplies and aid to neighborhoods and vulnerable people, it's the same committees. Whether you're thinking of alerting the areas where heavy fighting is going to happen and communicating messages of safety, once again, it's the same committees. Um, the committees are also communicating strategies uh, and psychological advice of how to get through this kind of horrendous war. Um, they're coordinating hospitals, doctors, medical supplies, keeping these things afloat. Um, they're coordinating with uh, neighborhood residents. They're co coordinating with uh, the professionals in the regions, right? If engineers are there, they're putting a call out. We need you guys to come fix this uh, electric shortage. We need you to do this. They're the ones doing all this, right? Um, they help the embassy staff, expats, international organization employees evacuate from unsafe areas and keep safe when they couldn't evacuate, right? They are monitoring deaths and disappearance, right? Um, and they've, they're the ones intensifying the no war campaign. Um, so, you know, just to give you a sense of what is happening on the ground right now, that is what's going on. So when we think about what comes next, right, um, the, com the, com converse the ceasefires in Jeddah, right? How many? I think we've gone through eight or more ceasefires by now, which none of them have holded, right? So the importance of the ceasefire cannot be emphasized enough. But the idea that it can be negotiated in Saudi Arabia first, outside of the continent, outside of the reality, you know, within a, a country that is contributing largely to what's happening today and has historically contributed to what's happening today. And then also at the exclusion of the Sudanese people, you know, like the very people who had told us that this was coming, they did not want the military in power. These negotiations are now once again happening among two factions and at the exclusion of the people, right? But uh, there is a refusal to learn from the past, whether you're looking at foreign negotiators or mediators. And so I think we need to focus on revolution, not roundtables, like O'Neill has said, because the, the people who are really doing the work of healing, of moving past it, humanitarian aid, are these committees and not the, the factions. So any kind of peace is going to have to bring in these groups, right? And I would like kind of, considering this is political education, I would say um, uh, Sharath Srinivasan uh, Sri, has wrote a book that called that's called When Peace Kills Politics, International Intervention and Unending Wars in the Sudan, which shows how international intervention previously in Sudan has completely failed at peace deals and peace agreements just, just end up being power sharing agreements at the disservice of the population. And so I think anybody who really does want to support Sunni's people needs to push for and like vehemently oppose any kind of agreements that are happening without Sudanese people at the heart of it, you know? And it's not even like a vague, it's not Sudanese people are not this vague notion, right? We have organized working people working in different areas. You can contact them there on Twitter or they have people who are like, you know, 
attempting to use social media to uh, so they are accessible they are there they're organized but there's no attempt to include them in any of this and this kind of leads to how we opened our conversation and why they're not being uh forefronted in the first place mm. keeping keeping on with the theme of, of revolution uh, not round tables the the vision of revolution that's projected onto this process typically when thinking about you know transition into civilian rule is you know the end of military governance and the installation of you know a competitive representative democracy with elections every four years uh, different political parties uh, vying for power um, and this is you know this is kind of what people think is what needs to happen next right this is the, we're thinking of a roadmap to democracy um, democracy understood uh, in this limited sense of representative democracy. Um, but as you're describing, the social transformation underway is wholesale. So it's it's not just envisioning, you know, ordinary civilian rule in the sense that people have limited political power in the form of the franchise, but that they're in complete control of their lives. Um, could you talk a, a little bit about like what that might look like uh, or is it even is that question in itself sort of premature is is what matters that you know the the experiment in democracy is what we're seeing right now uh, on the ground and we you know we can't prescribe the the cookbooks for the workshops of the future mm -hmm. so i think like here's the thing right i am i'm in total belief that the sudanese people can chart a path towards peace and a new democracy for themselves, right? And a clear, like, part of what got us in this mess is, um, you know, the West and foreign actors consistently uh, supporting agreements that were, what you said, were going to eventually lead to elections and all of these things that are held as liberal democracies, like, essential uh, framework. But basically what they did is, I think, when was it? 2023 is when the framework agreement was signed by the Sudanese Armed Forces and the Rapid Support Forces and political groups, right? And this framework agreement was rejected by the resistance committees, parts of the Sudanese professionals associations, and a lot of other civilian groups, right? And so when the framework agreement was signed, um, the Western envoy put out a statement saying, oh, we, it remains in our view the best basis on which to form a civilian-led transitional government and establish constitutional arrangement for the transitional period, right? But this is false. There are numerous alternatives on the ground to this framework that do not protect the military, including the Revolutionary Charter for Establishing People's Power, which has been drafted by the resistance committees in different Sudanese states in a participatory model and joined by professional organizations, trade unions, demand-driven organizations, women's organizations, uh, internally displaced people's camps, organizations, workers, students, organizations. And basically what this charter has said is it has created a, a, a pathway to transition, right? How legislative councils will be formed, what forms they will take, right? How long they will be given, right? And this is why, like, as Africans, we need to trust that the Sudanese people that removed a 30-year-old incumbent strong military-like power that was getting support from foreign actors, they removed that power. So I trust they can build this, right? And so there will be mistakes. There will be pushbacks. There will be counter-revolution. 
We've seen it. History has taught us all these things. But they already have pieces and possibilities in place. They've been writing. They've been thinking. They've been fighting with each other, coming to agreements, you know, falling. So we need to respect that process, you know. And so there are multiple alternatives, uh, William. So uh, really the narrative of like multi-party elections and all of that, I mean, the last two, three decades of Africa has shown us what a farce that is. So I trust in the process the Sudanese people have started. And I trust that they can make it work. Like, But I also, I'm in, under no illusion that it's going to be always beautiful, always winning, always, you know, this is a struggle. And uh, yeah. Mm. I mean, and I mean, maybe as we, as we wrap up, uh, you know, what one thing that has been kind of uh, astounding, but also in part in part unsurprising, is is just the extent to which you know, from the beginning, from 2019, um, the African Union has uh, been completely absent and and missing. Um, in in terms of supporting the the Sudanese people and and you know even even before that uh, you know one kind of uh, you know shameful episode in South Africa's post-apartheid history where where I am is uh, when you know Bashir himself was was in our territory and uh, the complete refusal of the South African government despite its international obligations uh, to arrest him um, and I think you know, history will punish us for, for that. But there's, there's a way in which, as, as you said earlier, you know, what's, what's really frightening for the international community, for African, uh, you know, ruling establishments elsewhere is, is seeing uh, a successful attempt uh, that has momentum, that, as you say, will encounter roadblocks, will encounter challenges, but which nonetheless refuses to go away quietly at vesting people with power over their lives. Um, and it's almost as if, you know, Sudan is kind of emerging as, as uh, the sort of the, the linchpin in, in a way of, of, of sort of the future for, for African democracy, um, progressive democracy, socialist democracy, um, in the sense that, you know, if, if this works, uh, which we, have faith and and hope and trust that it it will uh, it it allows people elsewhere to make the same arguments uh, to aspire for for the same dream. Um, is is that why you think there's there's just this yeah widespread fear and and um, intransigence on the part of of the African Union and African leaders to 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 do anything? Yeah, one hundred percent. I will say this right. Like when the October 25 coup happened, um, the African Union was literally one of the only organizations to actually it kicked out Sudan from uh, the AU and still, uh, to my knowledge, has not reinstated them. Right. So we did see a like that brief action, which was super important because the kinds of gains that were being made during the transition period cannot be knocked. Right. Um, and so for that, I will say. But of course, right now, the African Union, especially engulfed in this trilateral mechanism alongside EGOD and uh, the UN, has been really silent, right? Uh, and African governments have been 
closing their borders, right? Refusing to like let all Sudanese people or people from Sudan come in, right? Um, they've been supporting either or sides of these military factions, right? So yes, our governments are just as complicit and perhaps they're being complicit because this also threatens their, uh, uh, but more than for our regional governments, what is happening in Sudan threatens the um, external world, right? We are in a flux right now. We know the world is changing. We know whoever has Africa control and influence over Africa in the coming decades will determine who's the next hegemon or who's the next whoever, right? One of the most powerful countries in the world. And so we are very aware of like, you can see this, uh, all of these external forces acknowledge the resistance committees, acknowledge the grassroots committees, because they understand that they cannot say anything without legitimizing them. But they are very aware of excluding them at the same time of acknowledging them. So, yes, they're indeed very aware what kind of threat this is pausing for the future of African autonomy and the role of Africa, right? If you're looking, you should, if you're looking at any of like the Western think tanks that are writing right now, they also put Sudan at the heart of this Russia-Ukraine conflict, right? Because look back as early as 2014, Condoleezza Rice said the intention is Russia will eventually run out of gas. That's the, uh, Russia will eventually run out of cash, right? And by cutting that source from like uh, the, the Western uh, Europe buying gas is cutting Russia's cash. Uh, and so uh, Sudan, it's gold illicit transfers is the source of cash, right? So you see all these Western think tanks really looking at Sudan as uh, as like a kind of a proxy in some ways, right? They're, it's the subtext. They don't clearly say it, but it's the subtext. So yes, in many ways, um, this is a threat to the world order as we know it, whether we're looking at the imperial world order or the capitalist global world order. Um, and that is why I think um, uh, the hell with our governments, um, they are not in service of our people anyway. I think what Africans like you and I should be doing is really trying to stand in solidarity with the Sudanese people. The horrendous, horrendous things that are happening, the stories that are coming out should make any of us really like Black Lives Matter. Like if any African is reading that and is not enraged, does not want to do something, then that person needs to question why why we're so comfortable with this because um, nobody deserves to go through what they're going through especially uh, especially the way it's happening so I mean this is I would call for young Africans to reclaim their countries to reclaim their diplomacy like we, we you know to do what we can despite uh, our state's negligence or resistance. Mm -hmm. Mahidar, thank you for that. I think that is the, the perfect note to, to end our conversation today. Okay, thank you so much, William. Appreciate it. A reminder of who I've been chatting with. I've been discussing Sudan's current crisis.